Next on ReachMD, Voices from American Medicine, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice in the front lines of healthcare. Now here is the host of Voices from American Medicine, Gary Epstein. Massachusetts is one state that enacted a form of universal health coverage prior to the passage of the much-talked-about federal health reform program that was recently passed by Congress and is currently being implemented nationwide. Here with us today on Voices from American Medicine to discuss the Massachusetts experience as well as other practice issues is anesthesiologist and critical care specialist, as well as the current president of the Massachusetts Medical Society, Dr. Alice Coombs. Dr. Coombs, welcome to Voices from American Medicine. Thank you very much. You know, before we dive into some of the sort of political and social stuff regarding the Massachusetts system and and whatnot, I'd love to get background on you and talk a little bit about how you decided to become a physician in the first place. Actually, I'm from California, and as a young kid, I was always interested in science, but one of the main reasons why I went into medicine was really for selfish reasons, because I was fascinated with the body, and I was actually fascinated with my own body and where different organs were and how they functioned, so it was a curiosity for me initially, and that's why I went into medicine, and later, as I began to go to medical school, I became interested in healthcare disparities and healthcare inequities, specifically racial and ethnic healthcare disparities. And did you have role models along the way, either prior to going to pursue a career in medicine or during your medical education? I guess in high school, I went to a medical conference for students from high school that were interested in going into medicine and dentistry. And as a part of that program, there was a young gentleman who actually uh, toured us around in the cadaver lab, in the anatomy lab. And his name was Dr. Leland. It, was, it wasn't a doctor then. He, he is Dr. Leland Cox now, but he may not ever remember it. But it actually made an indelible mark in my life in terms of wanting to pursue medicine. How long have you actually been practicing as an anesthesiologist and a critical care specialist, and how has it changed over the years? I've been practicing for about 23, 24 years. Specifically, I started out in internal medicine, and I actually practiced internal medicine before going into anesthesia. And after going into anesthesia, I was really fascinated with combining the two disciplines together to do critical care and anesthesia. And medicine has changed tremendously from the time I was an internal medicine doctor in terms of having more specialized care, even in the field of internal medicine. And so that in the hospital, as a hospital-based physician, we have divisions of labor. There are doctors who are mainly in the ICU. There are ones who are mainly on, on the wards. And the old-fashioned paradigm of doctors coming to the hospital from their office is now becoming a very rare entity. So most doctors will work mainly in their office as primary care doctors, and there's something called hospitalists, which takes care of the patients once they hit the emergency room until the time they're discharged from the hospital and they resume care with their primary care doctor in the community once they leave the hospital. So that's changed tremendously. Did you know, I mean, along the way, was there something that sort of drove you to anesthesiology and critical care? I guess Medicine, when I was practicing, was very different in the sense that we did everything. You saw patients in the clinic, you saw patients on the wards, you did the discharge, admissions, you managed patients in the hospital. 
So uh, many times you would be in your office and you'd have to leave your office for an emergency that occurred in the hospital. And so it was a little bit more chaotic than the practice of medicine now. You would come back to an office after taking care of the emergency and have a room full of patients yet to be seen by you. So it's a little bit more stressful when you went home at 7 or 8 o'clock at night. You would still be on call, and you would receive calls throughout the night for all of your patients, including the ones that were in the hospital. So I think the new paradigm is actually better in terms of work-life balance. You talked a little bit in the opening about your interest in the uninsured and helping with low income or the whole issue of disparities, and I'd love to get some information about you about how you're helping with addressing disparities and talk a little bit about your service area, where you're practicing, and what's going on there. To be honest with you, this is actually very dear to my heart, and that is decreasing racial and ethnic health care disparities and health care inequities in general. And I guess it started when I was living in Los Angeles and actually observing things within my community. And one thing was having misdiagnosis or having delay in treatments, and it was related to where a person came from, what they look like. And it may not have been intentional. It may have not have been something that someone actually consciously thought that I'm treating someone differently, I'm managing someone differently, so that health care disparities result from differences in treatment. And so I saw that even in my own mother. My mother was treated for years for something that was told to her to be indigestion. And after she stayed with me for a short time in Massachusetts, I realized that she was having angina episodes, and indeed, she did have a heart attack. But for years, she was treated with antacids. You know, I know there's someone out there listening who's thinking, I have indigestion, and indeed, they may indeed have angina. So one of the things is that studies have shown that black and Latino patients who present with chest pain or more likely to be given Mylanta or Digel, whereas if a non-minority would arrive in the emergency room, they would be treated with aggressive therapies in terms of actually, first of all, making a diagnosis by obtaining an electrocardiogram. That's first and foremost. If you don't get the electrocardiogram, you can't diagnose the heart attack. So just the whole process of working you up for heart disease is changed based on your race and your ethnicity. So I think that's an important piece of healthcare disparities is first making the diagnosis and then allowing equal treatment once the diagnosis is being made. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Gary Epstein, and joining me today from Boston, Massachusetts, is the president of the Massachusetts Medical Society, Dr. Alice Coombs. Dr. Coombs, I'd love to now transition briefly into the political hot potato, I guess, at least that people across the country hear about these days, and that is the universal care efforts in Massachusetts, and get your perspective on what's the impact been and how's it going, and just give us some information. So, as you know, in 2006, we passed the universal health care law, which to date has 98% of the residents of the Commonwealth are now covered by some form of insurance. No other state has been able to do that. And so it is a, a thing that we're very proud of. However, we knew that we would have to address the cost of health care. 
And as it turns out in Massachusetts, the cost of health care is at the top of the chart when compared to other states as well. That's balanced by the fact that the quality of health care when it comes to everything from access to health care equity is always within the top 10% of the country. So Massachusetts has done a great job with the quality piece. And you will commonly hear people say, well, I want to be cared for in Massachusetts because they're known to have the best health care systems. Well, one of the pieces of the puzzle that we needed to work on, and that was the cost and the escalation of the cost per capita. So we're no different than any other state in terms of the rising cost of health care. It's just that we probably are a significantly greater cost, and so therefore, although our rate of rise may be parallel, we're at the top of the chart when it comes to cost. And because of that, we need to, we needed to and are still addressing how do we reduce cost. And a part of that was addressed in another bill, Chapter 305, and that was establishment of a payment reform commission for which I served on. And so that was a commission that dealt with how do we pay providers differently to incent coordinated care versus volume-driven care. That commission has a set of recommendations, and the next phase of that was how do we implement those uh, recommendations. And so a governance bill was filed this year. I think everyone is fully aware of it, and it is the payment reform legislative bill to address rising health care costs. If I'm a physician in Massachusetts, tell me a little bit, like if you could paint a picture of what I've seen change. How has it impacted my practice, my care for my patients? Is it more paperwork, less paperwork? Am I getting more time with the patients? Is it changed at all? What's that experience like? How did, how is that part of it working? So we can divide it into several segments. One segment is the actual quality of the relationship between the patient and the physician. When it happens, now the concern over whether or not the patient is worried about uh, how will I pay for this, that goes out of the window for 98% of the patients. So that discussion doesn't have to happen. So that's actually part of the stress. In terms of the other pieces of the puzzle and the practice of medicine, administration simplification in terms of the number of papers, you have to fill out the denials, the claim uh, filing, that pretty much hasn't changed that much. So that uh, those things remain unchanged, and we're still trying to address a uniform claim process whereby the claim simplification is encouraged and that it's not a different form for every single insurer. And then the whole consistency between insurance companies and claim denials, which some people hire people in their office just for to deal with the paperwork of claim denials, hopefully that will be reduced. Is it having an impact on emergency room care? You bring up a good point, and I want to backtrack to one of the other things you asked regarding the amount of time that a doctor spends with a patient. When I was in internal medicine, you know, we had you know, a certain amount of time allocated per patient. What's happening now is that many of the healthcare systems are actually trying to address a more comprehensive healthcare with addressing some of the needs of patients by managing them with other healthcare providers that are not necessarily physicians. 
such as a nurse practitioner who may actually see a patient in between their physician visits. The patient may be instructed to come back to have a hemoglobin A1C, to check their blood sugars, their blood pressures, and things like that, to see how they're doing in the interim from a physician-to-physician visit. So that's one piece of it. The emergency room visits is a very interesting conundrum because although we had we've, we've passed the 2006 Universal Health Care Coverage Bill, the rate of rise of emergency room visits has not changed. So it's between 2 and 3% per year. And uh, because of that, we were evaluating and questioning why our ED visits and patients have insurance now different than before. And it turns out that when patients are going to the emergency room, it's guess when? In the middle of the day, between 9 and 5, and also on the evening shift. But it's not in the middle of the night like many people thought. And it's at a time when doctor's offices are actually open, especially the 9 to 5 time period. So then why are they going to the emergency room? And as it turns out, if the wait time for a doctor's office is too long, the patient makes a decision. I'll go to the emergency room and have this taken care of. So in a way, the emergency room is serving as a decompression for the healthcare system that won't accommodate some of these patients for what we call non-emergent visits. And because of that, it causes us to really look critically at the workforce. And for instance, when your primary care workforce is decreased, then the number of doctors available for patients actually goes down and the wait time for those patients to see a doctor goes up and also the number of doctors who have closed practices. It's amazing that we are out of time today. And this, I could talk to you for hours. It's been a pleasure. I want to thank you, my guest, Dr. Alice Combs, a critical care specialist and an anesthesiologist and currently the president of the Massachusetts Medical Society. I'd also like to thank the Massachusetts Medical Society for nominating Dr. Coombs. Dr. Coombs, thanks again for being a guest on Voices from American Medicine. Thank you so very much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Voices from American Medicine on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals, featuring perspectives, challenges, and triumphs from physicians currently in practice on the front lines of healthcare. Voices from American Medicine is hosted by Gary Epstein. 